Welcome to That's All, a weekly debrief about anything and everything happening in fashion and pop culture with Cozzy and M. I'm M. And I'm Cozzy. And there is a whole lot happening in the world this week, so strap on in. And welcome to F5. We're here and we're having fun. Yeah, we're here and we're just talking about things. Much to discuss, actually. Much to discuss. I have nine pages of notes. We need to do our recommendations before it gets too far yes. in. So, yes. Cozzy, what have you been up to this week? Well, this week I was, I've been very busy, but I was in Melbourne this weekend. I didn't have a lot of time to like consume television or movies or anything, which I felt a bit stressed about, but I was actually out living a life. So that was kind of nice. But I did actually read two books in between all of the culture this weekend. I read The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donoghue. I read that on the plane to Melbourne on Friday. Really enjoyed. Caroline O'Donoghue was great for people who are like familiar with like the Dolly Alderton, Pandora Sykes, Multiverse. She's a journalist and writer who does the podcast Sentimental Garbage and she does a lot of collaborations with Dolly Alderton. And this book is really, really good. Full disclosure, it's published by the company that I work for. But just to like get that out of the way, but I really, really enjoyed it. It's called The Rachel Incident and it's about this girl called Rachel and her best friend James and their, would you say entanglement? This word will come up again in the episode, but their entanglement with one of the professors at Rachel's university and his wife and sort of what happens between the the relationships between the four of them. Uh, And I won't say anything else. And I also read Yellowface by Rebecca Quang. And that was really, really good. I read that on the plane home from Melbourne to Sydney. I didn't expect to read that so quickly, but I did. And it's about this girl called June who essentially like, again, like no spoilers, she plagiarizes a story written by one of her best friends who dies in a freak accident. And it's sort of, she steals this story, but is sort of deluded and is like I made it my own I made it my own but and it's the story of how she becomes this really successful writer based on a lie and how that sort of eats her up inside and things like that so so two books oh and I also listened to the new Sophie and Stevens album which was fantastic as well it's called Javelin uh it was really lovely and it's dedicated to um his late partner who passed away earlier this year and it was lovely and if you haven't listened to Sophie and Stevens or if you don't know who he is please go and listen he's probably most famous I mean, it feels reductive, but he's probably most famous for the music that he did for Call Me By Your Name. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, so he's the guy who did All To See Without (laughs) My Eyes. The one from the end when Timothy Chalamet's like crying into the fire. And also his music is featured in The Bear as well. I feel like that's a very cultured week. Yeah, I've never recommended two books in a row. I'm usually like, yeah, here's a rom-com and a true crime thing I'm watching. So I'm a really slow reader as well. Like it's rare that I'll finish a book in a week. I love reading. I love books. I'm just so slow. That I wish. I wish because two books, I feel like a bit whiplashy. You're just like a frantic reader. I'm a frantic reader. I, I need to like digest it all right now. I Like I read Normal People in like three hours. Oh my God. I remember my friend Sarah gave it to me. She came over to my house, had a nap. And by the time she finished the nap, I was finished the book. It takes me that long to read like an Instagram caption. Yeah, yeah it was. And then I read the um, Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo in a day as well. Jesus. That was really stressful. Yeah, I, I need to like slow down, but I it's also kind of handy in my line of work because I have to read a lot. What can you recommend? What did you do this week? I'm going to balance that out with a, another pod to recommend this week. Gorge. It's a single episode called The Fallout of a Callout. And Ooh. it's 
a conversation between Hank Azaria and Hari Kondabalu. Hank Azaria, if that name rings bells. I mean, it should. He's amazing. He's a very well-known actor. He voices over 30 recurring characters in The Simpsons. Is it 30? Over wow. 30. He does a lot of those side characters, but also the main ones. Like He does like Mo and stuff. Yeah, Chief yeah. Wiggum, like the ones that you know. Yeah. But he was also in some of the best movies. Like, do you remember Along Came Polly? Yes, I love that movie with um, Ben Stiller. And he plays the like the scuba instructor. Yes. And he's also in The Birdcage, one of my favorite movies. He is a very, very proclaimed actor. And he was in The Idol. He was. Recently traumatized. Which he did defend, which... I think was an interesting decision. I still love him. Let's not go into it. (laughs) We still love him, but he came under fire a few years ago for his depiction of Apu in The Simpsons, the Indian convenience store clerk. And Hari Kondabalu is a comedian as well. And he made a documentary in 2017 called The Problem with Apu, which examined how Hollywood in particular portrays South Asian people in media so he reached out to hank at the time he was making the documentary and hank declined to participate the documentary blew up there was quite the hubbub around it and hank stopped doing the voice for apu and that was kind of that but plenty of viewers kept the debate going by spewing racism towards hari and south asian people and they were very quick to put words in hank's mouth until he Mm. said guys read the room and now he's an advocate against racism in comedy, which I think is such a prevalent Hank thing. Is. Yeah. In the podcast, it starts where he's very open about the fact that he didn't understand the backlash at first mm. and he was quite defensive and subscribed to the idea that it's just a character, it's just comedy, just laugh at it mm. before mm. he obviously did a lot of learning and realized that he had a real role in perpetuating racist stereotypes. So I just thought this podcast was a very refreshing look at, I don't want to say cancel culture because I hate the concept. I'd and also he's not being cancelled. He's, he's not being cancelled. But he's learnt from this experience. He has. Which is awesome. And he's very accountable for it. It was the classic, he heard a different perspective, sat with it, learned about it and adapted his own ideals. So I, I feel like that might be a rogue recommendation coming off the back of a very like cultured few books. I think that we're very highbrow this week. I'm reading about Hank Gazaria. Did not know he was married to Helen Hunt for a year. Oh my God. He started going out with Helen in 1994. That's like peak Helen Hunt. That's like that Twister is. Helen Hunt. That's that's a power couple. Going back to last week. That is a power, a power couple. couple. Oh my God. We've got Fisher Stevens and Michelle Pfeiffer and Hank Azaria and Helen Hunt. None of them are together. None of them are together. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Immaterial. Oh my God. I'm obsessed. I love Helen Hunt. Sorry, we're getting off topic. We are. You weren't a Simpsons kid, were you? No, I, lo- I did love The Simpsons. But I, I didn't watch it like every night. I remember being really traumatized um, by one of the episodes where Sideshow Bob is like hunting <laughs> down Bart. I remember being really freaked out by that. They're on a yep. boat or something and he like climbs up the side with a knife in his teeth. I think it's like inspired by Cape Fear. It's like when he's in the jail and he's got the picture of Bart in the cell and he's yep. like all he can think about is getting to Bart. I think that freaked me out. And that's why I, I genuinely do not think I would be as culturally aware as I am if not for The Simpsons because they did those parallels really? and they did satire really well and comedy really well. And I think it introduced me to how comedy reflects life. That is so interesting. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever looked at it that deeply. Reflecting on it and after I listened to this podcast, I reflected on the role of The Simpsons in my life and why I still love it because it's a cartoon. Like I don't particularly enjoy animation. No, we both hate adult cartoons as we've discussed. In any other context, but... Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. I feel like it's different from an adult cartoon. Like it's not... Like it's just fun. And it's very... It's 
not timeless. I mean, we just had a discussion about how it's not timeless, but it appeals to everyone. I think there are definitely themes that are universal and ever present. I do love, I love that bit actually. It did make me teary once. The bit when like Dustin Hoffman plays the teacher that really inspires Lisa and then Lisa's really insecure and she's like, I just don't know if I can like keep being myself or like academic success or whatever. And then he has to leave and then he gives her a little letter and he's like, if you're ever feeling down, just remember this. And he gives her the piece of paper and he gets on the train and they wave. And then like he, she opens the piece of paper and it just says, I am Lisa Simpson. And it just got me. Tell me you're an anxious girl without telling me you're an anxious Literally. girl. Oh, and also that bit when um, Homer is at the nuclear plant and it's like, Mr. Burns is like, you're going to be here every day for the rest of your life. And then he puts up all the pictures of Maggie. The do it for her. Do it for her. <laughs> oh. Both See? of those scenes kill me. The Simpsons is so important. And also Moe's unrequited crush on Marge. <laughs> I like remember that too. I don't know why I internalized that. Actually, I remember quite a bit now that I'm... It's those three things. Anyway, when, yeah, we need to get onto the actual topics that we have to discuss. So it's been a bit of a wild week for couples in Hollywood. We've covered the Sophie Turner-Joe Jonas split in an earlier episode. So it's kind of like this is a sort of a follow on of the story as it is ongoing. We're breaking news. Not really. But there have been some updates in this case as well. Um, so they, Sophie and Joe entered into a four-day mediation last week and it's been reported that it was a success and they'd reached a temporary custody arrangement for their two children Willa and Delphine. According to court documents Joe and Sophie agreed to alternate who the children will stay with every two weeks. Sophie is also allowed to travel between the UK and the US with them. The pair will continue this pattern until early January. Joe will have the kids on Thanksgiving and Sophie will have them on Christmas Day which I back two major holidays. And in a joint statement, Joe and Sophie have said they're looking forward to being great co-parents and having their kids live equally between loving homes in both the US and the UK. That's all fine. That's all very standard. But what happened late last week is that page six revealed that Joe has filed to dismiss his Miami petition for a divorce. The whole thing. I think it's just in the Miami court, but it's like he's, yeah, he's filing to dismiss the divorce. So page six reported that according to court documents, Sophie and Joe have reached various agreements and plan to pursue an amicable resolution of their issues. It's more likely, however, that after their mediation session, the former couple plan to handle everything privately rather than in front of a judge. Like, as in they'd negotiate a settlement behind closed doors rather than, like, file details in a court. But So are they still divorcing? I think so. Like, I, this is my question. I'm like, are they still divorcing? I don't know. I hope so. She needs to get, she needs a GTFO girlfriend because it really started out as like another celebrity divorce story and then it felt so gross. Yeah, it was a lot of back and forth. I felt like there were real handballs in the press. Yeah, and now for him to just retract. he's such a simp. He's such a like gross. I I went through the other day like on the cut. People were writing the most fucking funny comments about the story about Joe. I have to read some of them. Out. I took photos of them and I forgot to mention them. In a previous episode, one of them says, I can't for the life of me understand how this oil slick of a man actually got someone to marry and procreate with him. (laughs) And now because he's a wee man, he chooses to try and sink her in the press with bad mum stories. That's some aggressive short man syndrome at work here, isn't it? And then someone else said, 
it's physically and this is my favorite one it's physically and medically impossible to roll my eyes any harder at what a smarmy whiny twerp he is good for her for being rid of him the people hate joe jonas yeah these are so mean but so justified i loved it everyone's calling him a twerp i say that word all the time in reference to him is that a very american word i think it is twerp twerp kind of like it yeah i don't know it fits <laughs> the brief but yeah so he's filed to dismiss the divorce whatever that means I hope that it means that they're still getting divorced and she finds someone lovely and they become a great power couple. She's still hanging out with Taylor Swift. She's like living at her apartment now. Who would you want to see her with next? I want her just to like live a life. Yeah, live a life because she has kids. Like she has to be a mother. Mother with a capital M. I don't know if I'd particularly want to see her with anyone next. Not Pete Davidson. Not an oily twerp. Not Pete Davidson. Did you see he's been sort of with Madeline Klein? I know, I saw that. Madeline, get out of there, girl. I really like Madeline Klein. She is an actress in The Outer Banks, which is one of my favourite TV shows on Netflix. She's a cutie. She was also in The Glass Onion. Yes. As well, which was quite good. But as well, this is also something that's interesting. This is um, very alleged, uh, like most of the things that I say. But this is also, I thought, an interesting point because Sophie has unfollowed her sister-in-law, Priyanka Chopra. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, they've un- she's unfollowed Priyanka on Instagram. Uh, so Priyanka is for the uninitiated. Uh, Sophie was married to Joe, one of the Jonas Brothers. Priyanka is married to Nick, one of the other Jonas Brothers. And all the Jonas Brothers and the Jonas wives get on together and this is the narrative and they all love each other and da-di-da. Everything's great in Jonas land. But Sophie just unfollowed Priyanka on Instagram and there was a blind item about this online that said, apparently this foreign-born A-list actress discovered who had been leaking stories about her to tabloids, which is why she unfollowed her former sister-in-law. And allegedly, people are guessing that, that, that their foreign-born A-list actress is Sophie and her former sister-in-law is Priyanka. I love when people communicate through Instagram follows. I also just don't like Priyanka. So this, in my mind, it like fits the narrative of me being like, don't like her. Yeah, therefore, team, therefore, team Sophie every day of the week. I, and I find Nick quite smarmy as well. The only He's done two good things in his life. He wrote Love Bug and he wrote Jealous and did the chorus version of Jealous, the like choir version of Jealous. Have you seen that? No. Oh my God, it's, am- it's amazing. It's like how the only good thing that Joe ever did was the song at the end of Camp Rock. Who's the rogue other brother? Kevin. No, the other one. Oh, Frankie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin's just the third one. <laughs> no, Sorry, Kevin, Kevin. You're not rogue. Extra forgotten. Kevin's sweet. Kevin's the only one who's going to stay married to like Danielle or Daniela. Yeah. Or Is whatever. she a normie? She's a normie. Yeah, oh. yeah. So that's Joe and Sophie. So file to dismiss the divorce. We're unsure what it means. I don't love it. Um, and then in more chaotic couple news. <laughs> One of my least favorite couples in Hollywood, Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith. Couple or non-couple? Well, we don't know. They've consciously uncoupled, apparently, to quote another famous Hollywood couple. But, and it's just to preempt this, all of this news that's coming out now is because Jada has a book coming out. So I think let's go into this topic all with the knowledge that she has a book coming out and there is publicity to be had around this. So she has revealed in an interview with NBC that she and Will Smith have been separated since 2016. Cue the gasps from the audience. She's basically said that they've been living completely separate lives for seven years, but they were not ready to publicly confirm the news before. And there's, there's always been rumours that they've been very, they have an open relationship, that Will's gay, that she's gay, that there's always been something around them. I think whether or not any of that is true. I think the only thing that's ever been confirmed is that they're in an open relationship and yeah, they still live separately, but do not plan on divorcing. So yeah. 
And this interview has come ahead of the release of her memoir, Worthy, which is coming out this week. And which is interesting now within the context of um, the Oscars incident when he's like, keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. It was very explicitly my wife. Yeah, it's like, keep my wife who I don't live with and we have completely separate lives name out of your fucking mouth. Keep my non-wife's name. (laughs) Yeah, my life partner, but we're not having any (laughs) romantic entanglements name out of your mouth. Also, anytime I say the phrase my wife, I always think (laughs) my my wife. (laughs) (laughs) From Bora. Oh, that's a power couple, I think. Yeah. Wait, Borat and who? No, Sasha Baron Cohen and Isla Fisher. Borat and his sister. (laughs) Yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen and Isla Fisher. I think Sasha Baron Cohen is quite good looking. Uh, Is he tall? Yeah, but he's got a really deep like baritone English accent. And he's funny. He's funny as well. Immediately plus 10 points. Oh, yeah. So good. Um, Sorry, what were we saying? (laughs) So she talks about how they separated for all these years, which is really interesting because previously she had been found out to have a four-year relationship with this rapper guy called August Alcina, Alcina, who was apparently friends with Jaden, which is interesting. Uh, She called it an entanglement, which is why I've been using the word entanglement a lot. So... In, on an episode of her Facebook series called Red Table Talk, which is basically where celebrities go to have big, difficult conversations about their lives. And that includes the Smith family. So she, yeah, she said she had an entanglement with this guy, August, and the information had surfaced publicly. And then they had a conversation about it on Red Table Talk, which ended with the phrase, we ride together, we die together, bad marriage for life, which makes me want to throw myself down the stairs. God. That is so like cringe de la cringe. It has the same energy as when someone posts like an anniversary photo on Instagram and they're like, we've been through so many ups and downs. Like, oh God, you hate each other. Yeah, basically the whole thing was that Jada had this entanglement and Will apparently gave permission for her to have this relationship because they were like separated or whatever. She does this New York Times article where she says, the truth is the Smiths weren't together in the traditional sense when she was with Alcina, nor are they now, but they are not in open marriage, nor are they uncoupled, polyamorous or divorced. They are something else altogether. Life partners in family and business, long maintaining an agreement they call a relationship of transparency. In recent years, they've lived separately as a 50th birthday presents to herself. Jada bought her own place, moving out of their Calabasas compound. So they're living separate lives basically, but everyone's acting like it's the biggest deal in the world. And she also talks a lot about the Oscars joke. And she says she thought it was part of a skit. Oh, wow. Yeah. She thought, didn't like, no. Whereas when I watched it, I was like, it's fake. It's all fake. And then it was like, no, it's very real. Oh my God. Imagine being the subject of that and thinking it wasn't real. Jada says I didn't judge Chris I didn't judge Will I was like oh this is a spiritual clash and then Jada's mother says it didn't have anything to do with Jada that was really Will's pain and it's true like Jada didn't ask him to do that no Jada rolled her eyes and then people were like not you're a part of it but they were kind of like oh she's culpable in the narrative because she rolled her eyes she's like I've driven my husband to do this because he's and he's mad for me no, I'm a firm believer that you are not responsible for a male's anger. No, I think it was just annoying and she was like, oh, whatever. Literally, he's a grown man. He should have just pulled it together. And then he won the Oscar. Oh, that's awkward. That was fucking mental. So awkward. I mean, I lost all interest. On I was like, it happened and I was like, my rebound rate is like that of a four-year-old child. I was like, I'm only going to be interested in unless he wins the Oscar. Yeah. And then he won the Oscar and I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to stand up and like be interested again. 
But so many people came out after that going, was it fake? Was it fake? It must have been fake because people have been losing interest in the awards shows and not a whole lot could get us interested again. I find the whole, and we talked about this previously, but I find the whole campaigning for Oscars and awards really interesting. Especially at a time when Hollywood is very rich Hollywood or you're not in. Like you oh, need 100%. to be, yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to be one of the elite to make it to these award shows and to make it into the movies and to be part of it. I and I think we're also interested in this because they've been so annoyingly open about their marriage for years. That's the thing. They were like, "We're in an open marriage. We're in an open marriage. We're doing this." Everyone doing knew that. about it. Here's how I feel about her. Here's how I feel about him. No one asked. Yeah, absolutely. But to sum up, in couple divorce separation news, Sophie and Joe may not be getting divorced. And Jada and Will are living separate lives. Fun. That that sums it up. Yeah, that sums it up. But it doesn't. It really doesn't need to be as confusing as it is. On the topic of Hollywood, they've announced a prequel to Ocean's Eleven, mm. and the cast so far includes Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. Mm. It's being produced by Josie McNamara, who also did Barbie and Promising Young Woman. Yeah, from Lucky Chap, which is uh, Margot and Tom Ackley, her husband's production company. It'll be directed by Jay Roach as well, who did Austin Powers, Meet the Parents. As a refresher, I think Ocean's Eleven is one of the best heist movies. Oh my God, just one of the best movies. One of the best movies. I love an ensemble cast as well. And we've talked about this, just guys doing guy things, having a heist. And like George Clooney, peak. Brad Pitt, peak. Gorgeous. Matt Damon, peak. Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts, fucking peak and a half. Andy Garcia, peak-ish. So many others. Like it is such a wonderful movie. And they did an Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13. And then more recently, Ocean's 8. So I have to admit that I've only seen half of Ocean's 12 and I've never seen Ocean's 13. Neither. It's one of those things where I, I'm so happy just leaving the good movie as the good movie. Like I don't need to add to it. I didn't oh, yeah. want sequels. But no, like the last scene when they're getting, when Brad Pitt's driving them off and the two like security guys follow them. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie <laughs> that came out in 2001. I won't lie. I do love Ocean's 8. I loved Ocean's 8. I loved Ocean's 8. We've had this conversation before where it's not really a sequel so much as a separate thing. It's Yeah, it's, it's a separate entity. Different audience, different energy. But I think we moved on from that too quickly as a society. I thought it was wonderful. It was a cultural moment. And I do think that anything that has James Corden in it as a supporting character should be kept separate from, um, I forgot from George he, Clooney. Why did you remind me? I know. He's like the gross, and not even gross. I just hate James Corden. He's like the very average insurance man. Uh, that was a fucking great movie though. It was. Again, ensemble cast, beautiful, wonderful. They did it. Like everyone great. Like Kate Blanchett in her suits, Sandra Bullock and like her face. Oh, Anne amazing. Hathaway, Helen Bonham Carter, Mindy Kaling, Sarah, Rihanna, Rihanna, Sarah Paulson. What a group. The Kardashians, like all these people, Anna, Anna Wintour, like all these people who were, because they robbed the Met Gala. Women. Women. If there's any film that coalesces my interests in like fashion, ensemble heist movies, like the Met Gala, it's that. We love crime and fashion. Two of my abiding interests. <laughs> Going back to the prequel, we don't know a whole lot about the the plot yet but we believe it to be set in like 1960s Europe which I back because the the Rat Pack original one was set obviously in the 60s okay I have a question for you I personally think that yes the Oceans franchise is so iconic we love it we've just spent five minutes freaking out over it but couldn't they just do an unrelated heist movie set in the 1960s with Margot and Ryan yeah especially because their celebrity is so big that we really don't need it to be attached to a franchise yeah, I'm like, why couldn't it just be so? Like, why does it have to be Ocean's Eleven? Can't you just get like a great crew of people 
and like do the thing. And I don't think people would call them out for being too close to Ocean's Eleven because it's a heist movie. It's a genre. Just lean into it. Like Ocean's doesn't own heists. Yeah. I've watched other heist movies that are not Ocean's and they're still great. Yeah. Ocean's just happens to be like the best one because you have the combination of Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney and all these people at the top of their game. It's like, you can just do that again. You don't have to like repackage it as Oceans. You can just let it sit on its own and just have a Margot Robbie, I want to rob type situation. And I also, okay, here's my question to you. Yeah. And I thought about this. Are Margot and Ryan going to become the new Emma Stone and Ryan? Essentially the new Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn. Like they start to do all of these really successful movies together. What do you think about that? I don't know because I liked Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, but maybe they were slightly less mainstream. I know that like Crazy Stupid Love and La La Land are very well-known and very popular. Gangster Squad less so and it wasn't as good. But that's a completely different ball game to Barbie mm. and now tacking on to another really big Hollywood, Hollywood film. Yeah, because even though La La Land was like such a, you know, say what you want to say about it, it was an awards darling. What do you want to say about it? Oh, no, I just think people like, I a lot of people it. didn't like it. I loved it too. Okay, good. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. What do you think? As I said before, like the Oceans franchise is so iconic, but like why couldn't they just make another 1960s heist movie with Margot and Ryan? Not necessarily under the umbrella of Oceans. Like I know that it's because of IP, which is obviously intellectual property. Reusing a reliable idea that's had success previously is like, I mean, I don't want to say it's basically a guaranteed win because I think sometimes it's not, but with two actors at the top of their game, you're kind of guaranteed, but it's so boring. Like I'm just bored with it. Like, and even Ocean's 8, which I loved, it didn't translate commercially. I've been reading a lot about post-strike Hollywood and what films and television are going to be like after obviously the writer strike is over but I have a lot of thoughts on this I'm sorry um but I read this really great article in Variety saying um companies are expected to be pickier about what they make talent and financiers to be more closely aligned on fiscal responsibility and quality for some creators more guardrails and feedback will be welcome people are hungrier now writers are producers are and studio executives are this is a positive spin on it he says I think we're going to see over the next couple of years hopefully more productivity and more selectivity and in some ways I think that's a good thing but I don't know like I actually don't know about that I think that's very wishful thinking and I read this other really great article in the New Yorker I'm reading a lot about, lot about this today that the industry's pursuit of IP at the expense of originality has all but trained younger audiences not to expect novelty or surprise at the multiplex assuming they're going to the theater at all and they called it buckets of regurgitation a cannibalization Ooh. of archive oof very visual I know buckets of regurgitation like thinking about that in the sense of like live action Little Mermaid live action Snow White that's coming out spare me the live action I'll say this the only live action that I want Tangled yeah that's what and even then I don't really want it because guess what I have the animated version you have to redo it creatively like literally I just made a list I wrote this is my notes like do we really need a Harry Potter HBO series if you're gonna do it we want a Marauders TV show. Sorry, babes. Not five different Fantastic Beasts and where to find them shit. <laughs> yeah. Which is true. Like, if you're going to do it, do it well. Or like, they did the Lightyear movie, which is Toy Story. That bombed. You know, all the Gilmore Girls, when the Gilmore Girls came back and had no impact. Or when they yeah. did the new Gossip Girl. And that got cancelled and that was terrible. It was truly bad. It was, so, And I was so excited about it. But it's like, well, why did we need that? Just create another show. 
And I, I guess uh, to be fair in that specific example, it probably would be a bit too gimmicky to do a show about like a bunch of private school kids in New York. But we would have watched it kind of like Dynasty was rich kids doing rich kid things or Pretty Little Liars or they're all part of a genre. You can still do it even if it's similar. We'll watch yeah. it. And it's just it's just not artistic. I just, it's commercial. It's just commercial thinking. It's It's people being like, how much money can we make? It's like the West Side Stories, all of Avatar, like the fact that we saw another Indiana Jones movie this year. Even the latest Hunger Games being a prequel. I literally was going to put in the Hunger Games and I'm like, am I being too mean? No. But no, the Hunger Games. They don't need to do it. Star Wars, no. why has that continued on for as long as it has? Oh, I mean, Rings of Power, all of Game of Thrones. I'm like, House of the Dragon, great, fine, whatever. Do we really need another 10 spin-offs? I'm sorry, I don't need it. Like, it's... I feel like Hollywood is so crippled financially and creatively that they'd rather take a safe bet. Here's my pitch. If you really want to adapt something to a fucking TV show, novel, movie, whatever, here's what I want. I want a 10 to 12 episode series of A Secret History. If you're going to do things, think of something that's A, never been adapted before or have a goddamn original idea. I say, speaking from my high horse. But also, if we start putting money to original ideas, we will open up a kind of cycle and we will make the art market different because right now the art market is not art, it's what will sell. And it's not even just Hollywood. We see it in reality TV and publishing and even fashion where we're being fed what we've liked before, what we've clicked before, and they will just run it again and again and again. It's all just repackaged. I mean, and look, I don't think that that's bad all the time. I think if people pay homage and redo things creatively and breathe new life into things, I think that's a very different thing. I think creating a Disney film where it's shot for shot, I think $250 million could be spent elsewhere. Like, okay, like if you think about it, when was the last really original thing that you watched? Movie-wise? Movie-wise or TV show-wise? Like I can only really think of TV shows. I can't really think yeah, of movies. I can think of TV shows and that's because they were independently backed or they came from a book yeah, exactly. or a theatre show. They, did, they weren't just produced for Hollywood by Hollywood. Yeah. And I think that's a problem. I think the fact that we can't think of, like I can think of The Bear, The White Lotus, and probably The Idol, which was fucked up, but it was original. So I can't think of the last film that I watched that I thought was really original. Yeah, I'm genuinely stumped. Well, because, like, Barbie was incredibly original, but it's so ironic for me to then think that because as soon as it did really well, Mattel was like, okay, we're going to do all of these new Barbie-based projects. It's and It's just like, a cash grab. And it's like, well, you didn't take away the actual, you didn't get the takeaway that audiences like something original and novel. Exactly. Which is what this film was. We're just like, cool, I'm going to make an Alan movie. Yeah. And it's also taking away projects that these actors could be doing. Like, I don't want to see Florence Pugh in a Tangled remake. I want to see her doing cool things. Do you think the tide will turn? Do you think they will go, oh my God, people don't want this anymore? I don't think they care what people want. And I think that that's what's coming out of all of these strike negotiations. Because there are really great things coming out of Hollywood and there are some really great shows and there are some really great movies but for me particularly movies are a dime a dozen like I I, don't, I just don't know this is where I applaud something like Succession where they knew when to call it yeah but I, I wanted to read this this thing from the New York Times that I thought was really interesting my aunt actually sent me this article about the culture in 2023 and 
And it's this article that kind of depressed me, but I thought it was very relevant for this conversation. It says, to pay attention to culture in 2023 is to be belted into some glacially slow Ferris wheel, cycling through remakes and pastiches with nowhere to go but around. The suspicion gnaws at me. Does it gnaw at you that we live in a time and place whose culture seems likely to be forgotten? I know. Chills. And it's not even that we're going around. It's that we're going around at such an unstoppable pace. Yeah, and it's worrying. It is, and it's dizzying. Like, I'm kind of sick of it. Anyway, I want to tie this into our next topic. I want to speak about originality in fashion, and this week we need to talk about Danielle Bernstein. So So I'm not super familiar with her, so Em is taking the lead on this one. I'm not going to go as, like, feral as I did on that other topic. I'm so sorry. I have a lot of thoughts about Hollywood and originality. But I think she must have more of a US following because I don't know a whole lot of people who follow her slash are interested in her. But she is a fashion influencer. She has over 3.2 mil on Instagram and founded the brand We Wore What, which was her blog name back in like the early blogging days around 2010, back when influencers were fashion bloggers, which I kind of miss. But she's around 30 now, I believe, and a typical street style OOTD girl who started a couple of brands and We Wore What is just the one that stuck. I've got to be honest, it's a a good name. It's a good name. It rolls off the tongue. Yeah. It reminds me of WeWork. (laughs) Actually, <laughs> we work, we were what? Similarly scandalous. Yeah, I was going to say similarly, no wonder. It's just, yeah, a bit dodgy. So she has come under fire over the years for numerous things, both personally and professionally. For example, in February last year, after Russia invaded Ukraine, she posted a series of bikini photos on Instagram with the caption, when I say you can do both, I truly mean it. You can post about fashion and post about world issues. You can raise awareness for your new collection while also raising money to give back before promoting her bikini line. So mm. there was that. She's also pretty heavy-handed on the Facetune. Oh, really? Is that still a thing? It is I still mean, a I thing. feel like naive for asking that, but... I yeah. feel like it was more of a thing around the Kardashians' mid-2010s era. Right. And I... Some editing, I don't care. Like, I just assume it happens. Like, if you mm. grow up looking at magazines, you just kind of understand it exists but she has been called out even very recently for editing her photos to an unrealistic standard and related to her brand she's been called out by small brands for design plagiarism and not just like one or two times countless times so when I was doing my notes for this I have a paragraph of all of the things that happened and there were too many to to list I had to cut the paragraph down because there were just too many things so many and in some cases it's just designs between her brand and an independent designer are eerily similar but in Mm. other cases she's recreated designs that she was actually gifted by those brands or she's gone to a brand and asked for product so dum-dum paper trail babe exactly they haven't given her anything or she's done a sponsored post and then she's basically made that design so over the course of her blogging influencing brand career she's really fed into that cerulean belt cycle at the expense of like small designers so her yeah all of her designs are gonna end up in a pile of stuff so she is obviously renowned for her style that's why her brand has been successful until now she's also done a collection with macy's which Mm. raked in 2.5 million in a day in a day in a day in 2020 she's sued and been sued but she is basically just a repeat offender like if we went through all the examples we'd be here all day also if you love a good scandal rundown and want to know more about her as a character celebrity memoir book club did a really great episode on her oh book. i love them yes we'll put a link in the show notes because i actually love that episode 
Anyway, it was super ironic when a couple of days ago, Business of Fashion published a piece called How Danielle Bernstein's We Were What Broke the Influence of Brand Curse when business of fashion is seen as a pretty reputable source still amongst the clutter that can be fashion media and advertorials. I feel like I see them and I see Diet Prada and I'm like, ah, yes, my two like fashion-y sources on Instagram at least, obviously. I read a lot of other stuff, but on when I'm like scrolling my phone, it's those two that come up on my feed. So was there a lot of backlash because they t- took her on as a topic? A lot of backlash. I first saw the piece on Instagram. They posted one of their little tiles about it and people in the comments were rinsing her. So Business of Fashion was copying it. Daniel Bernstein was copying it. And the piece, it was press for an upcoming pop-up. It was a puff piece with like a little bit of allusion to her previous issues. Yeah, they touched on her reputation and the fact that she's been the subject of controversies. They quoted her saying, just being an influencer, one second you're the hottest thing and every brand wants to work with you and the next you're potentially being cancelled. But if you own your own product and you own your own brand and it can extend past you and your reach, then you have a really big potential career. But if you're blatantly ripping people off, you're going to have a short career. Exactly. And it's the fact that she is ripping people off very obviously who are small designers and it's not just she's taken a strap design or like a skirt design she's taken entire pieces and just recreated it I also think it's just so not obvious but it's like she's asked for that specific design and then come out with her own design it's like oh coinky dinks like I yeah. think not like it finishes with the quote I've never apologized for who I am although if I make a mistake of course I'll apologize very much just like a fuck you whatever because she's not really cancelled because I think the whole concept of cancellation I don't think it's real. I don't think it really exists no one's ever been cancelled like even if they're out of work if you're an actor or you're a comedian or whatever you're still getting residuals you're still getting income like passive income so how can you be really cancelled? And it's usually just they lose a few projects, yeah. they lose a few jobs and then they pop back up later. And Danielle Bernstein has never had a period of time where she hasn't been earning money. She sounds like, to me, she sounds like she's aware, but she's not self-aware. Like she knows yeah. she attracts criticism, but she doesn't understand why. And to be honest, at the end of the day, like she's just getting on with her life. Like she doesn't really give a shit. Knowing how she sees the world and sees fashion, sees business... The fact that she's being pedestaled as the last influencer brand standing. She's also not. There are she's not. Others. Yeah, which is also a bit. I think to she's the many in others. like that mid-range influencer tier where you're not like ginormous, but you're not. I mean, maybe she is. I don't know. I'm not really in that zone. There are lots of theories that she's bought a lot of her followers because she doesn't have a high engagement oh, and classic the classic bot theory yes. that Caroline Calloway pioneered uh we love we love her come on the podcast Caroline but they did make the point that the vitriol comes from people who aren't necessarily customers and she doesn't need them to be customers mm. which I can only compare to Matilda Jerf Oh, I've seen that a lot of that online. No idea yeah. what that's about. So she's come under fire recently in relation to her brand, Jeff Avenue. Right. Where they've been reporting videos online. So just influencers or TikTok girls advertising knockoffs for her design. So they've been reporting those videos to get them taken down so that people don't buy the cheap alternative. Yeah. Which 
I think is a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, I was going to say, is that what they're getting mad about? Yeah, people are really mad at it because they're going, not everyone can afford your pieces. Are they really expensive? They are expensive, but they do have a lot about how they're ethically made. I can't fact check that. Yeah, okay. I think that getting mad about that's a bit much. It also shows where fashion is now, where you must own an identical item of it's clothing. It's the dupe, the dupe yeah, culture. Yeah, dupe culture. You don't need that exact same thing. No, just get something else. Especially people have been making the point that so much of what Matilda Jerf designs, it'll be like a vintage inspired something, like a button up shirt. So people are going, why do you need dupes? Just go to the op shop. Yeah. And that is, a, I think, a whole other discussion about yeah. that sort of stuff. It's like you don't have to buy a vintage piece from a new brand that's made it look vintage or distressed it or whatever. Just go buy an old man's shirt. And it's that old, like you have to see it styled on an influencer to buy it. But I think this instance contrasts with Danielle because it seems her critics and her customers have two distinct camps, whereas right. Jeff Avenue has upset their potential customers, the girls that are still aspiring to pay for what she's selling. But Danielle already has her entrenched customer base exactly and they're the ones who don't care about the controversies they're the ones who aren't going to buy from independent designers anyway and the only other brand that I could kind of compare it to is Sporty and Rich which I think does everything better than Daniel Bernstein but Mm. they've also come under fire for creating inspired yeah they've still had issues Emily Oberg the founder has come under fire for the same things as you said I personally am a real fan of Sporty and Rich I have a Sporty and Rich top I stalked it online I'm a big fan of the I think the name is a little bit cringe but I also it's fun it plays into that seductive thing of wanting to be a part of a club and wanting to be a part of something and you're a part of the sporty and rich aesthetic because every all of their clothes basically say sporty and rich on them it's like you're part of a an elite sporting club it sounds really wanky when I say it like that but it's that preppy waspy it's preppy waspy east coast I went to Spence I grew up in Connecticut da di da whatever we go to the Hamptons on the weekend vibe people get mad at the name sporty and rich but then we lap up trends that are called the old money aesthetic exactly or the preppy aesthetic and as someone who I like the old money aesthetic I and I say that like unironically I enjoy it. I like people who wear cardigans over their shoulders. My dad will kill me for saying that. He hates that. But it's true. Like, I'm not going to lie about it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But I do think that that name at least started out with a bit of a wink and a nudge. And now it's sort of turned into what it was maybe winking about. Now she's doing like colonics at her store in New York and stuff like that. It's, It's turned a bit goopy. They have the clothes line, the fashion line, and also a health aspect to it as well so you can go to their flagship store in New York that's only just opened and do health and wellness things as well yeah which I think is a bit sort of getting down the Gwyneth path I personally just like the fashion and she was profiled in that New York Times piece called Emily Oberg wants Spotty Rich to be the next group so yeah she's also been very clear then with her influences so when you're looking at it being like oh she's kind of a bit out of touch and also colonics and whatever it's like well she's it's not like she's shying away from that it's part of the brand like that's the thing she's out of touch and rich and preppy and she made it in LA but that's the brand whereas Danielle Bernstein that's not part of the brand she's just a bad business owner she's exactly I think Emily Oberg is at least aware and also she's very clever in her marketing very very clever in her marketing because the latest drop for Sporty and Rich, the whole campaign, the models looked like Carolyn Bissett Kennedy and JFK Jr. Obviously huge pinups in the 90s, like known for their style. 
And I think she's really capitalized on that. She's very much, she's got the girls who want to be old money prep wasp, as we said. That's such a big trend at the moment as well, alongside yeah. old money. Like Carolyn yeah. Bessett Kennedy, the just the hashtag has nearly 42 million views on TikTok. Yeah, and I followed, I followed Instagram accounts, just so adding myself. I follow this Instagram account called, oh, I follow one called CBK's Closet that has 6,000 followers, but then I follow another one, Carolyn Bissett, which has 53,000 followers. Sporty and Rich saw that, they saw what we were wanting and Emily Oberg went, well, I can repackage this in a way that is what you're wanting and it is an original brand. And she's smart. She's smart about it. This whole time, I still want to buy stuff from her. I think we assume that with these kinds of brands, we just assume that the owner is vapid because wanting to look rich is quite a vain thing to do. But that's kind of the point of fashion to try and look put together and look like you know what you're doing. Absolutely. I think that she's very smart. She's capitalized on that. And I also think that I am prime fodder for this because I did declare this summer was going to be my preppy summer (laughs) after I bought like some vests from Uniqlo and I started wearing like scarves and she fed into that on the flip side how we got here daniel bernstein mm. doesn't have that aesthetic she hasn't said this is what i'm trying to do it's she's more like just a, it's more like a wolf in sheep's clothing she's mutton dressed as lamb whereas emily oberg's like yeah i know i i see what you guys are wanting i mean there's an honesty and a truthfulness to that just to be like yeah you know what i'm doing it we're the fools we're buying it yeah, I'm a classic consumer. What do you want? I have a theory that I find so fascinating and I've spoken about this with so many people I know. So you've probably heard this before if you're listening, but it discusses the line between plagiarism and inspiration. Yeah, it's the line between appreciation and full-blown like copying. Or ripping it off. But it's called the piracy paradox, which is basically the idea that the fashion industry in particular can't regulate plagiarism too much because to do so would dampen the rate of innovation and production so it's oh. it's literally the cerulean belt where we need trendsetters and trend followers and we need the high-end brands to set the tone for high street brands so that mm. the cycle can reset and i was introduced to this concept by a great article in the new yorker called the piracy paradox from 2007 so this was a time before fast fashion really took oh, off wow. before and before influences as well i think yeah. the only influencer as of 2007 was probably the sartorialist yes and he was on blogspot which just shows different 2007 but also before disney started going insane on the remakes but it completely applies to today it references a paper by two law professors that suggests weak copyright laws and lacking intellectual property regulation actually helps the fashion industry so to quote the paradox stems from the basic dilemma that underpins the economics of fashion for the industry to keep growing customers must like this year's designs but they must also become dissatisfied with them so that they'll buy next year's copying enables designs and styles to move quickly from early adopters to the masses and since no one wants to keep wearing something after everyone else is wearing it the copying of designs helps fuel the incessant demand for something new so that was before that's e-commerce so really took off actually quite freaky to but it read still that applies. and then to think about what's happening now like even okay so to use an example ballet core is so in at the moment yeah like you have the Miu Miu shoes sandy liang and then so you see them on the runway and then i see now i'm seeing it everywhere in like zara yeah h&m and other not even just Zara, like other shoe places and whatever so that's a huge trend that has had a lifespan of, I would say... Most of this year. Yeah, most of this year. It's all like the girlification, ballet core, girly vibe. But like how long, what will the next one be? It explains the how trends 
work Mm. and why we need trends, but also why we can't just prevent copying from happening and why if we had an entire market of originality, it actually wouldn't be very successful and we wouldn't partake in the same way that we do now and I think as well like we talked about this last week in terms of what was happening at fashion month you know when we were talking about Scaparelli referencing stuff from the 40s from within the own its own house is that's not plagiarism that's paying tribute or like you know when they had the new Tom Ford runway and everyone was like it's just 90s Tom Ford and it's like well yeah he's paying tribute and this you know the new designers worked with Tom Ford for 25 years Exactly. What, what did we expect? We're bringing it's it back a, around. It's a blueprint. When you think about fashion, kind of everything in, is inspiration. Like even from brands that we really respect, like Christopher Esber is very similar Huge. to like 2000s, 90s Prada. Yeah. You can find some design elements that are kind of like a copy paste, but he does them with a twist. Yeah. But then you see something like we will what? Do it in a way that damages the work of others or it hinders mm. independent designers while Sporty and Rich just set an aesthetic and stuck to it. And again, like there's a very big difference between paying tribute, having inspiration, ripping people off and having an aesthetic Absolutely. as a brand. Like I do think that they're all quite different things. They, It's within the same sur- like Venn diagram, but different. But it, there's a lot to unpack there. I feel like we've we've jumped around a bit, but I think there's... It's, we're just at a very big moment in the culture. Yeah. Just the culture generally. <laughs> the question of originality. Actually, this makes me think of... Have you seen Meryl Streep say that she will not do sequels, which is why she wasn't in Mamma Mia 2? Oh. And that's why she... She just said she would do a third one, though. Oh, I mean, maybe she missed out on the fun. technically, she did do the second one, though. Yeah. (laughs) We're getting technical about it. Okay, I've fact-checked my claim. Amazing. And they're calling it a demand... This is by fandomwire.com. Mm. Film producer was forced to pay $3 million to Meryl Streep for five minutes of screen time in a $399 million movie. Basically just because she has a principle where she doesn't do a sequel, but they needed to wrap her character up. So they had her in Mamma Mia 2. It was a really good scene. I liked Mamma Mia 2 just because it was silly. I liked it too. I, I did go into it thinking, oh God, they've done all the best songs in the first movie. But it really got me into Abba's Deep Cuts. We're just going on a tangent for a second. Like Andante Andante. Had I ever listened to it before Mamma Mia 2? No. Do I love Andante Andante now? Yes. Lily James was so good. I feel like it was my first thing I had that I'd seen of her not being like a fairy princess or in a period drama. Yeah. Oh my God. And Cher. Oh my God. How can I remember. you say that's a bad film? And the fact that they had a character called Fernando just to yeah. sing the song Fernando, <laughs> my most hated ABBA song. I could talk about Mamma Mia for hours. We could, and maybe we'll do a deep dive on it one day. We totally should. Speaking of originality and creativity Mm. and having signatures. Yeah, one of the biggest creatives in modern times. Now, that's a big call. I've just said that. Wow, okay. (laughs) That's a CV. I think one of... Okay, let's let's just do a little addendum to that. One of the biggest (laughs) music producers of all time. I think he's like... It's like Mark Ronson and then him. So Jack Antonov. I agree. So this is a conversation about Jack Antonoff. If you don't know who he is, which I'm, I'm sure some people don't, he is a music producer who works primarily with like the big hitters like Taylor Swift, Lana Del Rey, Lord, and many, many others. He's really, really big. He's just done an interview with The Face magazine that was really, really interesting. He talked about a lot of different things. He talked about his career, his relationships with um, Taylor and Lana and other people that he um, works with. And his marriage to Margaret Qualey, who is the daughter of uh, Andy McDowell, who we'd know from 
films like Groundhog Day, Four Weddings and a Funeral, etc. If you don't know her from Four Weddings and a Funeral, she's the one at the end who says, is it still raining? I hadn't noticed. If you don't know her, you know her. Yeah, you know, you fucking know her. Like she's the bloody, the only American in the whole film. He talks about his marriage to Margaret and sort of his reputation and his work in the industry because he's loved and hated, I think, which I find quite interesting. He's a really divisive figure. Yeah, I kind of reserved my judgment for a long time just because I am a Taylor Lana Lord fan, mm. but I'm not so into them that I think about who's producing their music. In one of the first episodes, like practice episodes we did, I think we talked a bit about Jack Antonov and and you were like, why do people not like him? And then I went into this whole spiel about how he like changed Taylor's music sonically and I don't even think you were like looking for a real answer and I just no, like... I wanted to know if if people didn't like him because of his proximity to Lena Dunham. Oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. After reading this piece, like he sounds like someone that she would base a character off. Oh, my God. And I reckon that's why they went out because they totally would have gotten on because they both totally. sound fucking insufferable. He did this article where he talks about a whole bunch of different things and he he basically uh, has his own solo project, The Bleachers, who are, are really great. I actually really like The Bleachers and he did a lot of work with a band called Fun back in the day. They sang that song um, Tonight. Is yeah. that what it's called? Tonight. That one. Yeah. Um, and But he's basically now found fame as a producer and I really like – okay, well, I liked him before I read this article. I like his work. Everyone gives him shit for sounding samey or morphing his artists into him and his sound because the Bleachers have a very kind of unique sound. But I think when you think about the works that he's produced, Melodrama for Lord, 1989 for Taylor, and all of her – he's worked on every single subsequent album and Lana Del Rey's biggest albums, I think it's like – they're all very different. I don't think they sound sonically similar to his work. I just think people get into him about Taylor in particular because 1989 was such a big departure from her previous music. It was her first pure pop album. I just think everyone needs to shut up about him making everyone sound the same because he doesn't. I would quite also frankly. I would also assume that a recognizable sound is just part of being a producer. Like film directors have their signatures, visual artists a kind of allowed consistency like what is the problem with being consistent and having those oral codes exactly especially when you're working with truly wonderful artists who have their own unique energy he's yeah. not stripping them of their agency and their sound no like i don't particularly think that did you you know i don't think that did you know there's a tunnel under ocean boulevard sounds remotely like taylor swift who sounds remotely like lord who sounds remotely like jack antonov's latest album with the bleachers i think they all sound very different if anything He's changed their sound. I don't want to say for the better because they were all great before, but opened up maybe new avenues for them. And I think as a producer, he goes, I know what people are listening to and what works. Yeah. And this is going to work. And I think and it, it also did. helps people change if they want to change. Like, I don't think that Taylor could have done Reputation without 1989, obviously. So he provided that stopgap for her to grow and evolve as an artist like sorry for helping his artists grow anyway but he did this article my first note on this is love him but this article is a wank yeah 1, which 000%. i thought was interesting so he talks a lot about a lot of different things and and also just for context as well and because it's fun he used to go out with scarlett johansson way back in the day when they were like in college i think and then wow. he went out 
for several years with Lena Dunham, who of course we know is the writer, director, producer, creative behind Girls. And now he's married to Margaret Qualley. And the way that he refers to Margaret in this article is really interesting. Yeah. There's part where they talk about her and it says, Antonoff says meeting his now wife, the actress Margaret Qualley, sparked this shift in his writing. He refers to her only as my wife or the person I wish to spend eternity with during our conversation. I mean, vomitato. All I have in my notes for this article is his personality comes through more in this piece. Did it have to? Yeah, lol. Also the, my wife. <laughs> my wife. I think he has a f- an idea of himself, of who he is, but then what he's projecting is totally different. Like there's this section where he talks about, again, talking about the shift in culture, which we've been talking a lot about, talking about how the archetype of the American guy, bro, has shifted from a kind of jock to a faux intellectual. And he says, we've created this point where as art has become sexier, quite literally, all the jocks, they're all like creative directors now, he says, animated behind his trademark black thick-rimmed glasses the same guy that would weep reading you his leonard cohen first edition poetry is also the same guy who will just try and fuck you and i literally read that and i was like that's you dude like that's you and maddie healy that sums him up completely that's you like don't act like you're all above it that's you actually end of conversation come back next week bye yeah it's super soft boy and I, I think he's he's quite almost a bit dismissive of certain things. Like he talks about, they, they sort of talk about why so many huge stars have enlisted him to work on their records because Taylor Swift really did bring him into the mainstream as a name. As a producer. As name. a producer. Yeah. Like and no one would have known who he was. Like not, that's mean. But I think he wouldn't be like Mark Ronson level name recognition if not for 1989. No. I think he like owes a lot to her. He says, if you're asking, if you, almost anything you read about Antonoff will zero in on his work as a producer, trying to crack the code as to why so many epoch-defining stars have enlisted him to work on their records in the years since Swift tapped him for her colossal 2014 album, 1989. Antonoff says that if that was a tellable story, someone would have told it. He just so, he brushes it off. And then it finishes with, fundamentally, Antonoff doesn't have any specific answer as to why his work has permeated pop music so intensely. Sometimes I feel like because I've occupied so much space in culture over the past decade or something, I'm also expected to be like a scholar on why this is happening, he says. And my answer has always been the same. I don't know. The music? Yeah, it's very like... Shut up. <laughs> yeah, I think he's he's a guy who's clearly got a gift he's created some of i mean i love 1989 it's the album as i've said before that got me into taylor swift i love melodrama i think he's got something i I love his work but don't brush it off it's like you can say this is important yeah you don't have to be like i don't know the fucking music obviously it's the fucking music that's why you're here that's why we're reading this article about you that's why we're having this conversation about you jack antonov it's like what we were talking about a couple of episodes ago where it's it's okay to be enthusiastic it is okay to be earnest and it's okay to love what you're doing when you brush it off and kind of go oh yeah it's whatever yeah it annoys me because i feel like i read that and go oh i shouldn't care about this either yeah, then maybe I won't care about the Antonov sound. Maybe I won't do- actually, maybe I won't defend it when people have a go about the Antonov sound because no one's having a go about the Phil Spector sound. Everyone's no. saying, oh my God, Phil Spector created the wall of sound. Amazing. No one's, you know, having a go about that. Whereas I don't think that Antonov, I, I get what people are saying about it. Like in the article, they say it, a term that could mean variously bombastic 80s synths, 70s folk rock, sleek modern pop or treacly ballad work. And then they say the merits of this sound are widely debated. And I'm like, the merits are there. The albums are fantastic. And also he's, are you really saying that folklore and reputation sonically are similar? They're completely different. And he produced both of them. So he has got range. I think it's totally reductive to say that the Antonov sound, I will say that... 
there were two bits that actually really made me laugh and one I really agree with him but the other bit I just I laughed at because I think he just again like I think he really has a picture of himself in his head also just the way he talks is really funny his vernacular is funny so he says those lit people always have a hard time with me because I live in their area in Brooklyn. They can't figure out where to put me and how to do it. I almost feel like that community got real mad after Norman, meaning Lana Del Rey's album, Norman fucking Rockwell, because they're like, oh, we like this, he says. Maybe I'm not for them to cover. Maybe they're better off just sitting down with David Byrne. God bless him, of course. <laughs> Fuck off with the, da- with the bloody David Byrne slander, first of all. But it's like he's, I feel like he's so bitter that people haven't liked him. So then when people come to him and say, oh, I love I loved the Norman album or I loved Folklore. He's like, well, yeah, well, you didn't love me before, did you? Yeah, which is a bit annoying. And it's like, well, just be happy. Happy, happy that they love you now. When I was researching for this episode, I was reading just some random Medium article about him and they mentioned that no woman has ever won a Grammy for Producer of the Year. Really? So they had the last nomination was Linda Perry, who is known for working with Gwen Stefani, Alicia Keys, Pink and others. Wow. She was the last female producer nominated in 2019 and before her was Lauren Christie in 2004 and no one's won he always works with a female engineer and I remember when Taylor won for folklore I can't remember the engineer's name but they all got up on stage together and I remember seeing her in the long pond documentary that came out about folklore as well I think that's cool but like that sucks though it kind of annoys me when you are getting such wonderful recognition and hype and you're going don't look Mm. at me yeah, yeah, he's literally like, oh, don't look at me. Ugh, like, he's so annoying. Yeah, I'm successful, but oh, it's such a chip on my shoulder. I just wanted to read one more bit because I agree with Sorry. There's no, so many go. bits, but I'm like, this is because I love um, Reputation by Taylor Swift, the album. And he he does this whole sort of rant about it. And and I get it. And he says, Reputation at this point is fucking goaded. It's the fucking shit. I just love that album to the fucking moon and back, he says. I remember making that album and loving it. I feel like that album was met with some amount of cynicism. Then cut to a few years later, it's like, nope, everyone loves it. Taylor and I do talk about that a lot. You make what you make because you believe in it. And sometimes you get your flowers right away. And sometimes it takes a minute. And I do agree with that. Yeah, totally. And I like how he was excited for it. Yeah. And I will admit when it came out, I didn't love it. And then now cut to X amount of years later. And it's one of my favorite albums. But it, it, it just intrigues me that the same guy who can write a song as, and produce a song as beautiful as Margaret by Lana Del Rey comes across this way. Yeah, he's just, he's just some guy. He's Add just some guy. <laughs> and, but also quick shout out to his sister, Rachel Antonoff, who was a really great fashion designer. I have like this really cool suit like a tweed suit by her and she's very fun and I didn't realize they were related for ages so there you go we love a little we love a sibling 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 vibes a power duo we've been talking for ages now so we're gonna end it there we're gonna end it there but much more to discuss I'm sure next week and on our Instagram page if stuff drops after the episode we will always post about it there Always follow us on TikTok as well. We're on TikTok at That's All Podcast on everything. Thank you so much for joining us for another week. And catch you next time. That's all. Bye. Bye.